morning, church. What a gift to stand before you this morning. My name is Andy Maddock. I'm lead pastor here at Valencia United Methodist Church. My wife often accuses me when I have much on my heart as we come to our time of prayer of delivering a sermon before the sermon. Well, this is one of those weeks. Because ultimately, you know, coming into this weekend, we'd anticipated talking about our beloved members of our church family who are abroad in the Holy Lands and who are uh, seeing uh, through new eyes experiences uh, of where Jesus walked, of where the early church was born, and are sharing with us their pictures as they travel uh, with Rabbi Mark Blazer and Reverend John Shaver through the Holy Lands at this time. We knew that the Super Bowl was coming up and that that's always an opportunity for us to be uh, intentional about lifting our eyes to see not just two teams competing with passionate fan bases, but to see the brokenness and the needs of the world that surround it, knowing that Super Bowl weekends in the communities where they're played are often the highest days of human trafficking of any other time during the year where incidents of domestic violence and abuse are more heavily reported than in the other day of the year. We knew we were going to talk about those things, and we anticipated the need to just say we love you to one another in the spirit of Valentine's Day this week. And then the earthquake that took place in Syria and Turkey this week was just devastating. Just floored by the images and by the stories, uh, these now, what, five or six days on, you know, with our time difference there, uh, of what's going on there. People that are still being uh, uh, pulled from rubble and uh, now having conversations about what the survival potential is. To know that our own LA County search and rescue teams and their canine units are there helping to sort through rubble uh, and to look for potential survivors. To know that as of this morning, CNN was reporting that 33,000 people have been accounted for that have died. They expect that number to go above 50,000 when all is told and when their searches are complete. That is a big number, but it's hard to picture. If you're watching the Super Bowl this afternoon, think of it this way. If one half of the spectating audience in that stadium simply disappeared, that'd be 35,000 people. Or maybe you're, maybe you're watching golf and that 16th hole at Waste Management with all of the rowdies there, that seats about 16,000, 17,000. Imagine that two of those were simply claimed by natural disaster in an earthquake. We see stories now of attempting, attempting to help, attempting to move in the way that you heard Pastor Camille describe the work of UMCOR in this week and in the weeks ahead, doing what we can with our resources, that which we can gather and that which we can give to make a difference in our world. That pursuing justice is going on there as 112 arrest warrants have been issued for contractors and companies that built buildings since the new earthquake code in 1999 and who skirted the issue and whose buildings fell as a result of cutting corners. I think justice is also accomplished when governments that prioritize growth and the perceptions of a national people on an international scale are also held accountable to this volume of loss of life. And so we gather together on what is, in fact, a complicated weekend. The loss of human life and the struggles that we experience is a complex thing. And in my ministry, for 23 years, my goal has always been to make the gospel and to make scripture real and relevant for the people of God. And so that intersection of what is real and relevant with that which is complex is what we do. 
Because it is the confession of the church that God knows every one of those 50,000 stories. That it breaks the very heart of God for their loss of life. That God stands in the gap for strength and comfort for those who mourn the loss of children, the loss of parents, the loss of whole families. That is who God is and what God does in the midst of this. We're working through this Credimus series with the hope of being able to articulate who we are as the people of God. In the same way that you can look at me and state some things obvious, that is a human being, that is a human male, and you can kind of bring that down with the things that identify me. There's a certain set of credentials about myself that I know to be true. Some of them are found on my driver's license, but other are just convictions I have about who I am and how I move through the world. So too are our seven things we know to be true. That we're operating from a sense of being able from the outside world to be able to say that is a church. That is a Christian church. That is the people of God gathered in that corner. That is a United Methodist church. But it is these seven things that become the credentials for who we are as a people and how we will witness to the world when things are simple and when things are complex. So join me in a moment of prayer. Holy God, settle us in. Help us to know your story in the midst of such complicated stories. Help us to see your work in our families and in our lives. Help us to be a place where all families are welcome, and where we honor the difference of the families in shapes, size, makeup, and practice that come to call this place home. We ask that your spirit move among us up and down the aisles and across the rows to shape our experience of worship today. Help us to know who you are and whose we are in your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this Credimus series has been about the seven things we know to be true. Our first week, I had the chance to talk about your story is important. It's important to God, to this church, to me as a pastor, and it's a part of who we are. Our second week, Reverend Camille talked about the idea that God's love changes everything in our experience, our experience of the world and our experience of one another's. Week three sought an extension of our family of faith as Reverend Nicole Riley came and talked to us about the Bible having a message for us today. Week four saw me talk about everybody has stuff, and that's okay. And how we live to be a people dealing with our stuff together. Last week, Reverend Camille preached on all means all. And this morning, I have the opportunity to unpack our sixth piece. Families come in all shapes and sizes. The very first thing I want you to do for me, church, is to take your hands and just make a little bowl in your lap. And in that bowl, I want you to place your understanding and your experience of family. What may go into that bowl is your family of origin, how you grew up, how your parents raised you, morals and patterns, moves that you took, things that you saw, stuff that was important to you from your past. It may be a more recent past and your personal nuclear family, the, the spouse or partner of your choice, the children of your birth and rearing or adoption, whatever the pattern might be for your own family's history. And then your experience of your family present. 
All the things that are going on now, that stuff we talked about two weeks ago. I want you to hold on to that throughout our time today, because here's what's going to happen, is when we talk about families that are different than ours, being a part of the very kingdom of God, sometimes we are tempted to look at our family story and to pass judgment out of difference rather than celebrating what we have in common. So the refrain... Families come in all shapes and sizes. It's intended to lift our eyes to see that our singular experience of family, our singular definition of family is incomplete without it being laid down next to those different family shapes and sizes. But before we go any further, I want to say one more thing. There are some people whose bowl in their past or in their present moment, they look at it and it is a census number of one. One is a sacred number, friends. Whether you've been journeying for a while through your story, whether you've lost a partner and are living into a new truth, whether this is one of those seasons of life or it has always been a season of life, when I say families come in all shapes and sizes, you can very well be a single adult, young adult, older adult living into that truth. But the tension that I experience is that for me, I confess that there is a difference between having the strength to live alone and the emotional power of being lonely. I believe that God in the church equips us to address that experience of being lonely. That felt sense that my one is a sacred number is not complete because I do not have fruitful and faithful relationships We are in the business of honoring that families come in all shapes and sizes and drawing those, whether of great number or of small number, together to God's table. Come to the table. Be seated with the Lord. And I share that knowing that this Tuesday is Valentine's Day. I'm going to assume that everybody I see wearing red today is just a lover of love and not of the Kansas City Chiefs, and it'll all be okay. (laughs) Because it's Valentine's week. And for some people, February 14th is tough because it either serves as a reminder of the kinds of relationships one has had and has lost, has never had and longed for, or maybe it is just an anniversary that is powerful because it reminds you of something that's gone missing. I'm a lover of love. I've been lucky in love. More than that, I've been very fortunate to have not screwed that love up. And in that, I honor and value the beauty of a day celebrating a saint who is obsessed with the forming of human relationships. But know if Tuesday is hard for you, you will be in my morning prayers. Because everybody sometimes finds themselves living into that tension. I want to unpack our scripture this morning. And I'm going to confess before we even start, the word family does not appear in it anywhere. It'll be okay. I want to talk to you about the prophet Jeremiah and his vision about how God is at work in the world. It comes from the 18th chapter of Jeremiah, and it reads in this way. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I, Jeremiah, went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. So the Lord asked Jeremiah a question. 
the word of the Lord came to me and he said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, O Israel. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I love this beautiful imagery of Jeremiah being spiritually called down to the potter's house and I am no potter. I don't want you to picture Patrick Swayze in Ghost right now. Pick a different image. Pick a different image, friends. I'm not a great potter. Never been. But I admire those who can take stone as a sculptor or clay as a potter and begin to shape out of their imagination and out of a a, a pattern and experience of smoothing the edges of something. An art piece. A useful piece. A bowl, a pot, an urn, whatever the case might be. I don't get how to do it. I understand it. I can picture it in my mind. But this image for Jeremiah is that he comes to the potter's house and there is the Lord shaping this pot. And the thing that strikes me first is the pot that God is working on is imperfect. The word Jeremiah uses is marred. So when I talk about families coming in all shapes and sizes, hold on to your bowl. There are no perfect pots. There are no perfect pots. Often, I love doing weddings. And when I do premarital counseling, I will sit down with a couple and I will talk about family history as an experience of how you've come to know your priorities as a couple. We learn a lot from our families of origin about how we are going to live and express our lives. And when folks come to me in pastoral care or in that setting, oftentimes their question, timidly asked is, is my experience normal? And my pat answer, which I tend to work into those conversations, is this. When I find two families that are alike enough to be able to compare them, I will tell you what normal is. What I can tell you is this may be normal for you. It is where you are and what you are growing into or out of. Because when we talk about families coming in all shapes and sizes, it is a confession that we will take families in a perfect image, but the nuclear family as it stands is an illusion. And I say that standing in front of you as a man married to a woman with a girl child and a boy child. The messenger is incomplete. My family is so imperfect. Trust me, no perfect pots. But this as a cultural paradigm for what we will call families, for what we will accept as a responsible understanding of family in our church life is shifting because of the complicated realities and the generational change that's going on in the life of the church, in the life of our culture, and throughout all of human history. There are cultural nuances to what family looks like and how older members of family are allowed to participate in the life of the family together. There are more and more couples choosing not to have children as a pattern of life who are living without kids. There are families who are rearing children as blended families, not unlike my family of origin and Camille's family of origin. There are intergenerational families where grandparents are raising their grandchildren and are responsible for feeding them and getting them to school. There are multifamily dwellings. 
Boy, this was a piece that struck me. I'm, uh, I'm scanning the room to see if the coming hands here this morning. So I was in a homelessness task force meeting with the city office. And one of the things that struck me is our social worker for our elementary age kids told me this. We think of children as being homeless in a very different metric than those who are uh, doing this from census-taking purposes. Because they have a firm belief that if you are in a multifamily dwelling intended for one family, you are considered a part of the homelessness count in the school district. So think about what I said there. If due to economic circumstance, if due to COVID circumstances, whatever the case might be, if you are multiple families living in a single family dwelling, maybe your family shares a master bedroom and another family shares multiple bedrooms and a third family lives in the garage, whatever that dynamic is, we believe that that has a specific impact on the rearing and the education of children within our school district, and it is a big deal, and there are more than a thousand kids in this valley in that situation. Families are complicated. Culturally, things are shifting. I was born in 1977, and the year before that, 1976, the statistic was this. Women who gave birth to kids before 1976 were 60% more likely to have three or more children. So some of you are doing the math. and You're going, how many siblings do I have and how old I am? After 1977, and I am the natural brother of two siblings, I fit that demographic. But since 1977, that number has decreased to the point where 65% of all women who bear children will have one or two only. In the United States, our population is shifting out of the expectation of what we call family. There are no perfect pods. Especially when you begin to lay down cultural, fiscal, and social factors which define, strengthen, and tear apart families in a way that we never could have expected. But that generational process, as we're beginning to describe it, that it's happening over the flow of years, is not a new thing. Consider the stories of our faith. Abraham, whose descendants were going to be a great nation, fathered one half-son or full son, and Isaac only. The first families that define the people of Israel, the stories that they looked back on to understand families, the very first family involved brother-on-brother -brother murder, the very first family of redemption in the family of Noah involved sexual infidelity, the earliest families that they told their stories about were not perfect pots. Even Jesus is born not to an ideal set of parents, but ones who are on the move, who struggled, who fled violence as refugees, and who were resettled and grew in grace and mercy. But the hope in this for me, the good work, is that when Jeremiah sees the Lord at the pottery wheel, and he sees that, that marred pot, it is a part of God's work. Two brothers over 110 years ago, the Martin brothers, used to make these pieces of art as gifts and to sell. What you're seeing there is an imperfect pot, one that was literally thrown and then kind of allowed to, to fade like a souffle. And in that, etched on the sides, is the words of Jeremiah, the vessel that he had in his, was out of clay and in the master's hands uh, was marred in the hands of the potter, quoting that passage from Jeremiah. They made broken art 
as a symbol of the idea that what God is doing is being present in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our shifts, in the midst of what is imperfect. Why? Because God can use that. Jeremiah pictures it this way, this marred pot, God kind of squishes and repurposes and gives new edges, and he shapes it, this God-shaped process, as seems best to God. So when we say families come in all shapes and sizes, it is a claim and a hope that God is at work in our families. The good ones, the rough ones, the large ones, the small ones. God is at work in you as a family of one. God is at work in families of adoption and intergenerational child rearing. God's at work in your family when you are caring for aging and sick parents. God is shaping us. And that work that God can do in and through us is to God's grace and glory. Go back to your held experience what you call family. You're likely to be able to point to places in your story where you can say, I, I really see God shaping me. God walked with me through a, a hard time. God helped carry the load. God blessed me. But that version of family that we hold has some powerful ways in which it is shaping your experience. See, your family of past is oftentimes learned behavior. So when I get undone packing things like, like birth order, or married or divorced parents, or who are examples of loving couples that you have seen again and again? Are your siblings married? Do you hang out with other married people? What are the patterns that are sewn into your experience? Your version of family becomes a lived and learned way that we understand family. And when we say families come in all shapes and sizes, sometimes what happens is when you look at that remembered past, you go, this stinks. My relationship with my parents was flawed. I didn't know one of my parents. I struggled in school because I saw, or because I struggled, or because I wasn't fed enough, or never knew where I would lay my head. Sometimes the past is traumatic. Camille and I will be married 23 years this summer. You want to know the anniversary we celebrated the most? It's probably like the, the leather shoe anniversary. I don't know. It was our 17th anniversary. Our 17th was our most special to us because that was a benchmark that we crossed that neither of our birth parents as couples did. My parents divorced in their 13th, 14th year of marriage and Camille's parents divorced in their 16th. So sometimes what you hold on to your bowl as your family passed is a sense by which this is not aspirational, this is not inspirational, but it can inform who I am and how I'm going to live my life moving forward. And then that modeled behavior that you live into in your present experience informs your family future. We as parents are teaching future generations. You as grandparents are teaching both your children and their children moderns, uh, patterns of life and the future that we long into. 
And as we desire that better future, that hope and that possibility, it can be a part of God taking the imperfect, marred pots of your story and shaping them into something new. So we lean into healthy models for family life, and we welcome those that we would call unhealthy. Why? Because our experience is never complete unless it's laid down together to allow us to celebrate what we have in common rather than being divided by what makes us different. So what does that mean for the church? If this is our credentials, let me give you a vision. Change it from the the potter at the wheel. I want to talk about the welcoming hearth. Picture a fireplace with a big brick front to it. Just some place we can gather around for a, a, a time of fellowship and story sharing. That it will be a symbol of God's love and strength and hope and possibility where all have a seat, all have a place. You heard the announcement about family camp, and Camille and I want you to take that seriously. A couple things about that. First, Reverend Camille got the shout out in the announcement. There's so many hands making this work, and we're excited for it. We, in, while it says family camp, the vision is really for it to be a, an opportunity for retreat for people of all ages, with children or childless, to have the experience of those who want to come together around a welcoming hearth, to be away from this place, to be in God's creation, and to be in fellowship together. We need your RSVPs, though, because we'd like to know you're coming so we have enough materials and can plan accordingly. But here's why I like the vision of the hearth. Because it incorporates a job I would have loved to have had. In the Middle Ages in England, there was a job called the shop. Spelled S-C-O-P. It's an old English word. And it was a storyteller. And the shop's job was this. The shop would come to a village. And the shop would sit down with individuals and families. Tell me your family story. That's an interesting last name. Tell me about your parents. What do you know about their parents? Oh, wow. What brought you to this area? How long have you lived here? Oh, fascinating. And out of that time of of enculturating and the experience of gathering with a community in that way, or in a church, the shop would then post notice, come next Tuesday, gather around. I have a story to tell. And everybody would come with energy and excitement because the shop was finally going to do their job. And the shop would stand on the hearth, the hearth in the inn, and begin to tell a story. And the story that the shop told would blend together the experiences and the family stories of everybody in that town or in that church. And show them how they were richly knit together, how they were inescapably drawn to one another, how they were knit and tied into one another, not just by relationships, not just by marriage, but indeed by the very fabric of the story of life. And that story expands in the language of the shop to say this is how your story is embedded in the very kingdom itself. This is how you and this place and its people are tied into the great kings of old and our best and brightest future. Everybody left that story seeing how they were woven into what had happened and what will happen in their common life. Families come in all shapes and sizes. And my hope is 
that we continue to see how we have been tied into everything that God has done in this church and at this place and how we are a part of its common future together. That's a big hope. It's a big hope. So let's give it to God in prayer.